0: coming up on Tech Nation, it turns out we are reading from 6 to 12 hours a day on our digital screens. So what is the difference between reading on paper versus reading on our tablets or laptops? Cognitive scientist Marianne Wolf joins me to talk about her book Reader Come Home: The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Then on Technician Health, a neuroscientist talks about his work in treating such problems as behavior and cognition in fragile X syndrome and memory loss in early to moderate Alzheimer's disease or following traumatic brain injury. All this coming up on this week's Technician.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: There Ought to Be a Law was a cartoon that ran from 1948 to 1984, and I remember it as a kid. Reading the comics page was a frequent occurrence on a Sunday morning, and while I was more likely to fixate on Prince Valiant and take a run at Blondie... There Ought to Be a Law always bothered me. I just didn't get it. I understand now that the cartoon was for adults who were, unbeknownst to me, solidly immersed in the frustrations of life. And I also remember we might find ourselves in an unforeseen situation where they would be reading the paper and look up and say to the room in general, you know, there ought to be a law. That sensibility is apparently core to our experience because it persists to this day. It's not unusual for someone to pronounce to anyone in earshot. You know, there ought to be a law that they can't or you can't, somebody should or shouldn't, but what's new may be the target of annoyance. For one thing, those things called chatbots or software robots or just bots automatically sending out tweets and posts and emails and digital invites and other directed debris of social media. It doesn't seem right that you don't know if a human sent it out or a chatbot did. And who would blame you if you think there ought to be a law about that? The good news is, now there is. California Governor Jerry Brown has signed into law Bill SB-1001. It was introduced by State Senator Bob Hertzberg from Van Nuys. You see, he was bothered by the Russian efforts to spread misimpressions and misinformation online using these bots, and by the bot-created social media deluge after the Parkland shooting. He sees it as fraud, plain and simple. Do you have the right to know whether the communicator is human or just someone giving you the impression of being human? Or was it a machine? And even more to the point, was the human you thought you were talking to someone else altogether? Someone you might choose never to listen to or maybe listen but take with a grain of salt. Well, you can't arrest a chatbot, but you can arrest the person behind it. And while California can't make something illegal outside of California borders, it can be very specific about what you do to Californians, wherever you happen to be. Now, you can't use a bot to communicate with someone in California to sell a product or a service. And, this is a very important part, and... You can't use a bot to communicate with someone in California to influence a vote in an election. At the same time, if you're human and you are who you say you are, have at it. But if you are a chat bot, you got to identify yourself at the very start. I would say that's throwing cold water. And that's the point. There are problems enforcing this, that's for sure, but this is a start and something that our legislators can start working on. And why not earlier, you might ask? Let's face it, we have to start using and then abusing technology to shape what a reasonable law ought to be. What's really got me excited here, beyond the law itself, is this, Senator Hertzberg isn't done. Now he's got his eye fixed on automated spam telephone calls. I say, Go, Bob, go. I'm Moira Khan. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, cognitive scientist and longtime Tufts professor, Marianne Ann Wolf. You may remember her from her earlier book, Proust and the Squid. Now she's talking about your brain on digital media. Then on Tech Nation Health, a neuroscientist tells us about work-developing treatments for fragile X syndrome and early to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Marianne Wolf's latest book is Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. I had just read this book on paper, so I asked her, how does that compare or differ in terms of my brain with reading it on a tablet or a phone?
2: Well, Mara, it really will always depend on the individual's reading circuit. And that's what I want to actually begin with as an answer to your question. The fact is, we were never born to read. That's not what the species gave us. They gave us language, we have vision. But we who are human created reading, and the brain allows us to create new circuits for new cognitive processes. So we have this circuitry that is developing and is very plastic and will reflect the characteristics of its environment. So, a reading brain can be very simple, it could be used for decoding information, and that's what the young do. But our whole hope for the young is that they are connecting that brain with ever more sophisticated cognitive processes. Now, that plastic circuit will reflect the writing system, like A Chinese circuit is different from an English reading brain circuit. Even English is different from German and Italian. So you have different circuits. But very much apropos of your question, the circuit will reflect the medium. So if the medium, like print, is advantaging those processes that are more, let's say, cognitively demanding, what I call the deep reading processes, when you read in print, you almost automatically activate those deeper, time-consuming processes like inference and ultimately critical analysis. When we read on a screen, we can use deep reading processes, but more than likely, we have become so inundated with information that we have begun to change the circuit so that it reflects the advantages of that medium. So, the digital medium advantages fast processing, much more visual handling of multiple aspects of information, multitasking. So, we are learning to read in a different way that is a circuitry that devotes less time to the deeper reading processes. So even though, and we have very interesting evidence, we can read the same exact novella. This is research by a wonderful woman named Anne Mengen in Norway. The kids, high school students, college students read Jenny Mon Amour, a lusty French novella. They read the same actual content, print versus a screen. The kids who were reading it on print, uh, on, uh, in a paperback, had far more understanding of the details and the sequencing of the plot. Therefore, their comprehension was actually better than the kids who enjoyed it and had the gist of it, but didn't have the same command. They hadn't allocated sufficient time to processing some of the more details. Now, why is that? Because I'm asking the question you might have just asked. I could see it in your face. <laughs> Why would we do that? Well, when we are reading digitally, by and large, we are in a day that we are reading six to 12 hours on a screen with voluminous information. What we do is we adapt. We adapt by learning to skim very quickly, word spot, and browse. Eye movement people like Dr. Liu in San Jose State say the new norm for reading is skimming and that we follow an F pattern or a Z pattern in our reading. So we sample the top, go to the middle, do a little word spotting and browsing and go down. Or we do a Z where we sample the first, then we diagonal our way, word spot our way down and finish. Now, we do that because we are efficiently trying to get that information in. The problem is that that disadvantages the allocation of time to the deep reading, critical, analytic, and also empathic powers. I would add even one more thing, that as a writer, and I know you and I both are writers, we spend a lot of our cognitive energy trying to make words in such a way fit the complexity and even the beauty of our thoughts. All of that is missed <laughs> when we weren't spot an F or a Z pattern. Not all of it, but so much of it. And I think of Italo Calvino, who really talked about... How the very essence of writing is to find the perfect word, the perfect sentence that will match the thought, the moju, the the, the the real precision of the match between word and thought. And that goes missing on the digital screen too often. Not that we can't really grasp an inordinate amount of information, and we have beautiful filters that we are adapting to. But I think too much goes missing. That worries me.
0: I think when all of us uh, went to school, we just thought the teacher showed up every day and decided Mm -hmm. to teach whatever the teacher was going to (laughs) teach. And uh, uh, and then when you go to university, of course, uh, the teacher didn't show up every day. But uh, people often think, well, they just talked about whatever they talked about, random assignments, whatever they wanted to throw on the final exam. And so, there's, in fact, lots of accreditation that goes on. There's lots of prescriptions mm-hmm. for how much outside, how much inside. And, and one place I ran smack against the reading issue mm-hmm. is there were prescribed, if you've signed this many pages of reading, it should mm-hmm. take you this long. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was teaching a a technical mm-hmm. course, yes. and uh, I was contacted by the person who reviews all these syllabi celib- mm-hmm. with respect to the reading and mm-hmm. the number of hours outside. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, uh, you're going to have to do some other assignments or change these things because they're not spending enough time reading. And I said, what's going on here? And he he explained the number of pages and all this. I said, have you ever tried to read one of these technical things? You know, whether it's science or technology, you must read every word. You go a little bit down. And, oh, I'm not sure I got that a little bit back. I can't assign those number of pages. Yeah, We have to make an argument that mm-hmm. it's not just the number of pages. We have a different relationship right. in this. Yeah. And, of course, with math or with science right. or with technology mm-hmm. you have to not only understand what's going on, you have to take it in so you can apply it to the next thing you're reading. Exactly. And now we get to that sort exactly. of deep reading, deep yes. learning. Yes, yes. Uh, which is at a whole different level than mm-hmm. I'm scanning the news on my tablet. Right. Right.
2: There we I really believe Maura, you are putting your fingers plural on several of the real issues that we have in knowledge right now. We cannot just ask our students to read so many pages or so many hours and assume anything because we have such different styles going with our students. There are real kids who can grasp a great deal quickly, but by and large, speed does not illuminate. And I I think of Ralph Waldo Emerson, I I, I have this quote in front of me, because it, it really is true cognitively. He said, when the mind is braced by labor and invention, the page is doubly significant. We can't even imagine, or I can't imagine, skimming some of the text that you are talking about, and yet... That's what our students are doing because they are bleeding over the mode of reading that they use 6 to 12 hours a day onto these very technical texts. There are several variables here. There is the style of reading. There is the necessity of figuring out what kind of reading demands what, and that's a purpose. What is the purpose of this particular reading? And when you know the purpose, you may even decide very quickly that you should not be reading it digitally. You should be reading it in print, which by the nature of the beast actually forces us kinesthetically to give more time. Um, There's I think it's David Ulin who said this, but what he was saying is that when you read something in print, it adds to the geometry of words. And what I believe cognitively is that depending on the purpose of the reading, when something is important, we need to activate all the dimensions we can to be sure we allocate the best focused attention that will then lead to us being able to make inference and consolidate it in memory and Ultimately, be critically analytic. Is this something that supports or refutes what our own background knowledge tells us? All of those processes demand time. And we need to know in whatever assignment, what is the nature or purpose of that reading? Because if we apply the digital everyday mode, we are going to miss out on what is ultimately the necessary consolidation of concepts that that material is giving us.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira again and my guest today is cognitive scientist and scholar of reading Marianne Wolfe. You may know her from her earlier books, including Prist and the Squid. She directs the Center for Dyslexia, Diverse Learners, and Social Justice in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. She's here today with Reader come home, the reading brain in a digital world. Now, I was fascinated by some of your statistics. Uh, You Mm -hmm. cite the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which in turn notes that two thirds of U.S. children in the fourth grade do not read at a proficient level. What's a proficient level? And are these children being measured by sort of an out-of-date standard? Uh,
2: Maura, one of the great challenges that I have as a reading researcher is also a challenge as a citizen. And it is a reality that many of our children are not reading even at a basic level in fourth grade, much less a proficient level. There are differences in socioeconomic status There are differences in our children who are bilingual. There are differences in our children who are African American and those who are Latino. We need to understand that a great majority of American children in the fourth grade and in the eighth grade will never read at a level that actually enables them to do the deep reading processes we are discussing in this book. There are several reasons why. One of them is that our educational system has always assumed that children will be fluent comprehenders by age 10, more or less grade four. The reality in our schools is that our children are not fluent readers by the end of third grade or fourth grade. Yet, two things have converged that have pernicious consequences. One, our teachers, by and large, in the fourth grade, assume the children have learned to read. They were never trained. Unintentionally, they have no training in the teaching of reading. They assume the students that come to them are prepared for the second major factor, which is that the content changes. It accelerates in volume and in complexity. So children who come to fourth grade who are not prepared, who are not fluent, will be given a double whammy. They have a teacher who is ill-prepared to teach them. They have material that only asks more of them. It is a recipe for a disastrous set of consequences for so many of our children.
0: Well, in a related entry in the tiny notes section of the end of the book. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, you read oh, well.
3: Oh,
0: you read well. Watch out. I
2: love that. Oh, I love it. I hoped somebody
0: would read all the <laughs> notes I had. It's not a tiny section. They're just in tiny print. Yes. Um, you actually also go on to say that in another study, mm-hmm. uh, it found that 93 million U.S. adults are at or below basic levels. Mm -hmm. Is that just what happens if you just play that out?
2: You know, one of the things that I'm most concerned about is that our children are just passed on. And then they become the most likely to become disruptive, to have behavioral, social, emotional sequelae, the most likely to drop out, and then the most likely to actually be imprisoned or in institutions or on on homeless avenues of San Francisco and other places. And so one of the pleas I have is that we have an educational system in which all the teachers from K to 8 are trained in assessing who needs what. If I could look at a tiny little country with far less problems, like Finland, I will nevertheless say that what I like most about them is that wherever the child is, for whatever reason, from whatever background, they are not allowed to fail. And that's what I would like to see in our grade schools, that the fourth grade teacher, the fifth grade teacher, the sixth grade teacher, they're all working to develop that literate mind by eighth grade. There are, there are groups like SERP, the Strategic Educational um, Research uh, Program, in which they are working especially on vocabulary and trying to do that in a multidisciplinary way so that the science teacher is working with the language arts teacher, is working with the math teacher, so that they're sharing concepts that are being if you will, multiply exposed by that child. So they're building this conceptual background knowledge. And that background knowledge is essential for them to become really literate readers and citizens. And that's what I, I would like to change so much about what goes on in our teaching. So no child leaves eighth grade without being a fluent, comprehending
0: reader and future citizen. So if you at any time fell down on any of the aspects throughout grade school, you might never pick it up again. No. And you might end up with these 93 million who are really not that good at some of this.
2: They aren't that good. And if we look at our world, we have about 800 million non-literate people. A propensity is towards women. They have not been given literacy. And I, I really think this is something that our world, and I certainly know the UN and, and actually Pope Francis and others, other leaders are saying, we must consider literacy a basic human right because it's the key to so many economic and, and 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 public health issues i'm actually working as an advisor for the international monetary fund of all places because they're interested how can we build the economic uh, foundation for so many of our citizens around the world and it begins with education and health and they go together a literate mother has babies that, that can live.
0: I'm also struck uh, by the fact that even if you are not deeply literate, if you will, yes. the capability yes. to read anything, right. independent of what you may have read, right, um, that that doesn't stop you from watching television or listening to talking heads. Right. It does stop you from... Getting at the truth, <laughs> you're going you, to take the real oh, books and and right. research on the internet. If you, it right. does stop you feeling like. Well, I know you're saying that, but what could the truth be? Right. What do I,
2: Maura? Well, the the last thing I ever thought when I began this book, or come home, is that my work in cognitive neuroscience would lead me to have thoughts which are more important for a democratic society than they are for science. I think science in this case, science and the humanities, have a responsibility to ensure critical analysis in our population because a very basic level of decoding information does not allocate time to thinking about that information, thinking about whether or not it matches what is known, whether it makes sense. Critical analysis And empathy are both endangered at this moment if all we are doing is decoding information. Because it allows our citizens to believe they know the truth of something when there is no basis in fact. It allows our citizens to, in fact, become more and more susceptible to fake news, to falsely raised hopes and even worse, falsely raised fears, all of which makes us as a nation, as a culture, more susceptible to demagoguery with all its promises, its fears, its statements, its building of distrust of others. That's what demagogues across our entire history do. And demagoguery has many guises, I'm not making a political statement. I'm making an intellectual and scientific one. Only when a people really can be critically analytic of its information are we assured that all the voices, the alternative perspectives, can be judged fairly and wisdom
0: can emerge I'm so fond of saying, now, what's the science on this? What does Mm -hmm. science tell us here? I was very impressed with the fact, not only of the great capability of the human brain to grow Mm -hmm. and change and adapt, Mm -hmm. but that we have actually respected that for for centuries before Mm -hmm. the science came Mm -hmm. in and told us.
2: Absolutely. It's an amazing um, entity.
0: I've been speaking with Mary Ann Wolfe. Her book is Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. We'll talk more after a break. of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, we'll hear from a neuroscientist about treating such problems as behavior and cognition and fragile X syndrome and memory loss and early to moderate Alzheimer's disease or following traumatic brain injury. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with cognitive scientist Marianne Wolf, the author of Reader Come Home The Reading Brain in a Digital World. We've just been talking about the ability of the human brain to expand its own capabilities. If I were to ask a
2: group of engineers who are extraordinarily trained to create the human brain, what they might leave out is what you are really thinking about, which is the capacity of the human brain to go beyond itself and to actually look at what it doesn't have to use technology to create it for it. That is one of the most amazing aspects of our brain, that it literally can rearrange itself to go beyond itself. That, of course, can have misses, Reading is a cultural invention. It is our, in my opinion, the greatest epigenetic invention we have ever created. We will go on and create more. But to this moment, I consider that one of our greatest epigenetic
0: creations. And I need you to explain to people the term epigenetic Mm -hmm. because I think it's extremely important. Okay. What I want people to realize
2: is that we have genes that have a wonderful ability to program functions like language, like vision, like our sense of smell. When we're born, that genetic endowment literally unfolds in an environment, and it's the same everywhere. We have the same capacity for for vision anywhere as long as the environment kicks in. Epigenetic is when our inventions come together, converge. They are outside our genetic program, but they help change us over time. Reading is epigenetic in that it involves literally the genetic programs for language, for vision, for affect, for cognition, and culturally changes how those genetic processes are arranged to make something totally new this goes beyond our genetics we are now and these are uh, these are not my statements but the statements of many visionaries we are now in a time period when it's not just biologically induced evolution but human driven evolution epigenetic changes are part of human-driven evolution. And reading,
0: I think, is one of our most foundational achievements. What you read, what you do, the information you take in, what you want to think about in a very deep way literally changes your brain. It does. We have an
2: elaborated brain. We have elaborated it, and we will continue to elaborate it in this moment of time and my basic message is that just as there are misses in evolution, where we lose traits, we can lose the aspects that, because it's epigenetic, because it's not just a program, but evolved and elaborating with what we do, what, how we change it, we can miss some of the things that we have achieved in this elaborated reading brain that we possess right now. now. It's not a binary, and that's, I think, the most easily confused message in my book. It's not print medium versus digital medium and how one has one kind of circuitry and one has another. No, what I'm talking about is how do we preserve the most important cognitive, ethical, empathic processes that we have grown as a result of that print reading brain, as we expand the circuit, preserve and expand, not expand and displace.
0: This is not a matter of taking the digital and trying to avoid it. Right. This is not a matter Definitely of not. abandoning traditional reading and deep reading right this is being conscious of the fact that our experience is changing our brains exactly so we need to have new goals yes what are our new goals for ourselves and our children
2: Maura one of the uh, most challenging aspects in writing this book was for me to confront the necessity to place in a proposal the best of my own ideas as a foundation for a dialogue with society. The very nature of this book is a proposal, at the end, for a biliterate reading brain in which all of these essentially sophisticated processes that we have achieved will be learned by our children from the start. And therefore, I have a proposal for what I am calling a biliterate reading brain in which we have parallel tracks in the kindergarten, especially the 5 to 10 period, in which all of reading is done in the beginning with the print medium and used as the basis, the kinesthetic, the tactile, all the dimensions that we can allocate in print for learning deep reading. And as the child, and this will individually differ according to the children, but as those children become fluent and really thoughtful readers, I want that taught digitally, explicitly. I don't want the willy-nilly bad habits that we adults have where we have a digital screen mode of reading that bleeds over into print. I want from the start the children to learn how to be the most thoughtful readers First through print, and then explicitly moved over to digital. Simultaneously, I want a parallel track of children learning the extraordinarily essential processes for the 21st century of coding and programming. I want the I want technology to be absolutely as important as every other aspect in in the classes, but I don't want it be to be used for reading in the very beginning. I want it to be taught as, as an aspect of a kind of reading so that our children and individuals, and there are differences, will say, what is the purpose for this form of reading? What is the best medium for me to do that, that form of reading? It is the case that different types of reading are best served by different mediums at this moment. And we have not seen the end of our mediums. They will, they will evolve in ways, more that I'm sure you and I will appreciate, but not necessarily <laughs> become adept
0: at. <laughs> there you go. Oh. There you go. Well, typically I, I get a book and I kind of scan through the chapters. Sure. And, and I was reading your book for a little bit before I realized these aren't chapters. Each chapter is a letter yes. a letter from you <laughs> to the reader
2: yes, yes, Maura, I had to think very carefully about whether or not i could I could convince my editors who were skeptical whether the public was ready for a dialogue, and I did it for three reasons: the first is in fact i, I was it was rejected by my my editors correctly. But I wanted it to be called Letters to the Good Reader. I had two reasons for that. Um, I once was a literature major, two degrees, and wanted to study the poet Rainer Maria Rilke. And his book, Letters to the Young Poet, had made a, a completely amazing, transformative effect on me. And I didn't become a poet. I was just as unsuccessful as the poet that he wrote to. But it was the process that he went through of speaking to a stranger with such gentleness, with such appreciation for the other's viewpoint. And I realized there was no better model for me to write about what I know that would elicit thoughts from a reader who knows more about other areas. So I wanted a dialogue between bodies of knowledge, the body of knowledge that I, the author, possess and the body of obviously ineluctably different knowledge of the reader. So Rilke gave me a a model of what a dialogue could be. But underlying that is a basic assumption that I don't have the last word. The last word is not written and the the reader i it's like i want a reciprocal relationship with the reader i'm going to have very negative reviews and i hope very positive reviews but i want people to think and if if anything this book can do is to be a non-political clarion call for a public that thinks deeply reads deeply and doesn't use Twitter for the complexity of the issues of humanity today.
0: Mary Ann, I have to tell you, it's great to see you. Please know you can always come home to Tech Nation. Know that. Mary Ann, okay. come home to Tech Nation. <laughs> and I hope you come back and see us many times. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maura. I just had a
2: wonderful extra moment with you today. It is a surprise and
0: a delight and a joy. My guest today is Marianne Wolf. Her book is Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. It's published by HarperCollins. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today, the journey of a neuroscientist, from academia to industry, and now today, the founder and CEO of a drug development company, Tetra Discovery Partners. Tetra focuses on treating such problems as behavior and cognition in Fragile X syndrome and memory loss in early to moderate Alzheimer's disease or following traumatic brain injury. I think we can all appreciate that scientists have long careers, and they're always very enthusiastic to talk about their latest research. But I realized that this neuroscientist made a significant scientific discovery very early in his career. It was in the area of Alzheimer's disease, and I hoped we might start there. Dr. Mark Gurney is the CEO of Tetra Discovery Partners.
3: Yeah, we were searching. Thank you, Maura. I, I really appreciate the invitation to be on your show. Um, we were searching for the, um, the enzymes that cause Alzheimer's disease back in uh, 1995, 1996. And we, uh, that was the, uh, the point in time where the human genome was first being sequenced. And we, uh, we, we knew that in Alzheimer's disease, there's a characteristic change in the brain there's uh, protein deposits that develop, and those are called amyloid. And the amyloid comes is a small piece of, the pro, of a larger protein. And so we thought that if we could understand how that protein was cut into pieces to form these little amyloid deposits, that maybe we could inhibit that protein that was doing the cutting. And that would give us a, a novel therapeutic approach that might have benefit in Alzheimer's disease. I had the uh, the opportunity to work with a strong group of, uh, of biochemists at my former company, Pharmacia. They had been working on uh, drugs to treat AIDS virus, and they uh, were interested in a, a protease, an enzyme that cuts a, an AIDS virus protein into pieces, and, uh, and then that allows the virus to assemble. So they were, we were in a discussion one day, and we uh, were looking at the sequence, the amino acid sequence of the amyloid, the Alzheimer's precursor protein, And we were looking at the sequence of the AIDS virus and the enzyme that was cutting the AIDS virus. And we recognized that, gee, it's the same kind of site. Different types of proteases, the enzymes that cut other proteins, recognize specific sites. So I said, well, what do you think? Do you think that the beta secretase, this really important enzyme in Alzheimer's disease, might be an aspartyl protease? We said, sure. Why don't we look for it? And so at that time, in, uh, in the late 90s, the first human genome sequencing efforts were underway, and we had access to that data as it was coming off the sequencers. So we said, well, could we find a new aspartyl protease? There were only four that had been so far discovered in the human genome. And so uh, I had a, a, a wonderful colleague in Sweden, in Stockholm, who uh, had access to the computer that had all the DNA sequence information on it. So we spent a weekend in, uh, in Stockholm, sitting in a lab together, Saturday and Sunday, um, looking for a spiral proteases. And we found two. And we got really excited by that because, well, there was only four, and now we had six. And then we knew that this Alzheimer's protein was in a membrane. And the two new proteases that we found were also in a membrane. So that Ooh. was uh, exciting. <laughs> it was. This
0: is your kind of a fun weekend as a scientist. <laughs>
3: yeah. we know how to we know how to have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so uh, we came away with those two sequences, and then one of those um, one of those uh, proteins was present on chromosome twenty one, and we knew that in Down syndrome and trisomy twenty one, there is advanced uh, Alzheimer's pathology. So then we went back to the lab, and we made uh, antisense oligos and knocked out the two proteins and found one of them was the beta secretase, and that was it. And so now, uh, 20 years later, uh, beta secretase inhibitors are finally in uh, human clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease. And unfortunately, we're, we're somewhat disappointed by the, by the results. Uh, so far, uh, the companies that have developed these, uh, these uh, drugs have failed to show uh, clinical benefit, either in prodromal Alzheimer's or in, uh, or in mild to moderate Alzheimer's. So we, we're on a path. That path took 20 years, and how many billions of dollars of investment I can not imagine. And uh, we need new ideas now. And, you know, sometimes you have found one part
0: of the answer, and then you need one or two others together to make it all work.
3: Well, the reason this took 20 years before we could run the clinical trial is that it was so difficult to design the drug molecule. So even though we had the DNA sequence and even though we could make the protein and even though we could crystallize the protein and uh, understand its structure, it still took 20 years of chemistry before uh, anyone could figure out how to make a, a little organic compound that would fit like a lock and key into that enzyme and inhibits its action.
0: Well, nothing will feel so good as when you actually figured out that enzyme.
3: Yeah, that was fun. That was, uh, that, was, uh, that was how scientists have a good time, as you say.
0: <laughs> you were really having a good time. <laughs> no doubt about yeah, it. Yeah, we no were astounded it worked
3: it. as well as it did.
0: <laughs> well, you've moved through uh, uh, academia, you've moved through several companies now, and now you're the CEO of Tetra Discovery Partners. Tell us about that.
3: Tetra is a biotechnology company. Uh, we have a drug that's uh, beginning uh, trials in fragile X syndrome, which is a genetic form of autism. It's a, a genetic disease that's due to a change, a mutation in a, in a gene on the X chromosome. So boys are affected more strongly than girls. It's an orphan disease. It affects about 40,000 men in the United States, mostly boys. Um, and we're working with a a, a a really wonderful physician, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Barry Kravis, uh, who's in Chicago. And Dr. Barry Kravis, as a young physician, was interested in uh, the biochemistry of Fragile X syndrome, and she made a, a fundamental observation that there was a change in a particular signaling pathway that's important for how one neuron in the brain communicates with another neuron. She made that observation in 1987, so 30 years ago.
0: Even before you found your enzyme. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so uh, finally, the, the gene that causes uh, Fragile X syndrome was discovered. And once that gene was discovered, it was possible to, to study the gene in, in uh, animals, in fruit flies and in mice, And in fact, when you make the same mutation in the animals, you see the same change in the biochemistry that the cyclic AMP levels go down. And what this means in the brain is that the the neurons in the brain that carry memories don't make connections correctly. So they wire up, but those connections aren't stabilized. And in the end, uh, when we form a memory, that's how we store the memory in our brain. It's kind of like a computer. It's hardwired in there, and there's a little circuit, and you tickle that circuit, and your memory of mom and her apple pie (laughs) comes out, right? And uh, so in Fragile X Syndrome, all of those connections between neurons fail to mature. So they're, they're temporary, if you will. Or, or... They're temporary. They're not stabilized. The, the patients can't form memories, and they, um, and they don't understand. And so there's severe intellectual disability. And then that's accompanied by anxiety and uh, um, uh, hyperarousal. They're very sensitive to sounds. And then also autistic spectrum disorder. So there's a failure to interact norm, uh, socially with their parents, with caregivers, with people around them. And you see that, too, in the, in the animals. When that, when that gene is changed in fruit flies, uh, they can't learn, and they don't court. So uh, when you put a, a fruit fly male with a female, he'll no- normally wiggle her wings at her. That's a courtship dance. And uh, the fragile X, fruit flies don't wiggle their wings.
0: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so there you go. Science can be so <laughs> yeah. simple. <laughs>
3: yeah, and, and in fact, when you change this, uh, this signaling pathway... In the fruit flies, then they do wiggle their wings and they can remember, uh, uh, you know. Uh, if you can't remember, you can't learn. That's right. And then you never can, uh, you know, adapt to the environment or remember.
0: Everything is scary. Yes. Everything
3: is for the first time. No yeah. wonder you've got anxiety. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we now have a drug. That can change that signaling pathway. That can um, inc- the signaling pathway is called the cyclic AMP signaling pathway, and there's not enough cyclic AMP in the in, in the brain of a fragile X patient. So we now have, for the first time, have a drug that can increase that the amount of that molecule, and we know in the mice that it actually improves behavior. Now, they, uh, the Fragile X mice do have social interaction. They are less anxious. They learn. They remember. They bury marbles. They build nests. They do all those nice things that normal mice <laughs> Normal mice do. <laughs> normal <laughs> mice do. But the Fragile X mice do not. So uh, we're just starting our uh, what's called a phase two, a mid-stage clinical trial with Dr. Barry Kravis in uh, in Chicago, and we're really excited to see uh, what the results of this trial will be. And that means it's in humans. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And, but they're kids, right? Well, we're, we're, the, for in this initial clinical trial, the patients are 18 to 45 years of age. Okay, so these are grown up. These are grown-up people. Yeah. Uh, And then as we show safety and tolerability, then we can move into younger and younger patients. So ultimately, we'd like to be able to treat patients from six years of age and on. But you don't start with a six-year-old. You start with a 25-year-old. We use social media to connect with patients about our programs. Um, And it's been a very interesting uh, uh, give and take. Uh, You know, initially when we started doing it, some of the patients wondered, well, why is this biotech company Wanting to speak with me about my, you know, my son or my disease, and we thought um, we would sort of upend the uh, the standard way of designing a clinical trial. We might start with the patient (laughs) and uh, ask them. (laughs) (laughs) What?
0: This is also supposed to be inside our heads. (laughs) Yeah, believe it or not. Why not
3: start with the patient and ask them? uh, You know, what would they like the drug to do? How can we help them with the condition that they face? Uh, and uh, we also, for a rare disease like Fragile X syndrome, we wanted to know where the patients were and who was treating them. And it was actually easier to start with the uh, patients than you would have thought. Normally you start with the physicians or you start with uh, a CRO, a, you know, a contract research organization. But in this case, we started with the patients. And actually the, uh, our Fragile X program is a, is a really nice example of a, of a public-private partnership. So as a drug company, we're a private company. And we partnered with the Fraxa Research Foundation uh, with uh, Dr. Mike Tranfaglia. And so Fraxa had set up the mechanism where we could send our drug to them. And they had the Fragile X mice. And they were willing to do the assessment of the drug in the mice. And then we were all delighted to see that in the mice it actually worked. You know, it improved the connections between the neurons in the brain, and it improved all the behaviors. And then um, they uh, they connected us with Dr. Barry Kravis. So we said to them, well, gee, should we run a clinical trial? And they said, of course you should. And of course we'd be willing to help. And so in the design of the clinical trial, we also took a, a patient and physician-centric approach. We said... Well, Dr. Barry Kravis, you're the expert. How would you design the trial? What clinical assessments would you make? Uh, normally, the drug company comes to the physician and says, this is the trial I want you to run. And, and we, we
0: thought, won't tell you the end point <laughs> because this would foul up the science because then you'd be trying to go to that
3: goal. Well, yeah, not quite. It's that... Um, the physicians are closest to the patients, and the patients are closest to themselves. And so that's the way you would like the information to flow upwards to the company, is what do you want the drug to do? For example, in, in Parkinson's disease, uh, the, you know, the, the current drugs control the movement disorder. But also the patients are concerned about whether or not they might develop dementia. And uh, it's the cognitive impairment that then prevents them from holding a job from uh, you know, living what they would consider a, a, an active and normal life, and so the the new drugs for Parkinson's that patients would like are drugs that treat the cognitive changes, the functional changes. That was a, that was a, a surprise to me, and I, I found that very interesting. And that actually came out of a out of a conference that the FDA held with patients to understand what they thought their needs were. The FDA is doing this too, isn't
0: that remarkable? I think it's great. I think great everybody. Is. In the case of Parkinson's, what is obvious to everybody? They can see the tremors or the, the change in, in mobility. Uh, so that seems to be the obvious thing to fix, but it's not the patient.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, If you ask the patients what needs fixing, they would say, gee, I'm really worried about developing dementia. Another example of a public-private partnership for Tetra is we uh, partnered with a a program at the National Institute of Health for the discovery of our drug. So uh, we were part of what's called the NIH Blueprint Program, and it was a uh, a collaboration between all the different institutes at the NIH that fund research on the brain. So uh, neurologic disorders and stroke, aging, mental health, the directors all pooled money together, and uh, decided that they would um, create a model, like a virtual biotech. So a company or an academic group could come with a therapeutic idea and the biology, and the NIH would provide uh, services. So they had consultants that were senior executives from in different disciplines in pharma and contractors for doing chemistry. And so we worked together with them for uh, two, three years, and discovered this wonderful molecule, and were able to then bring it into the clinic. So it's an example, again, how different business models are being developed to defray some of the risk of finding new drugs. Most of them don't work. And... uh, companies are running out of money <laughs> to, to invest in new drug molecules. And, uh, you know, the investment community is, 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 is not making any money back to reinvest in new ideas. And so, again, the NIH was, uh, was trying to fill a gap. Well, Mark, thank you so much. This has been terrific.
0: I hope you come back and see us again.
3: Thank you so much, Mara. It's really a delight to be on your show.
0: Dr. Mark Gurney is the founder and CEO of Tetra Discovery Partners. More information is available at tetradiscovery.com. That's T-E-T-R-A, Tetra, tetradiscovery.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.